0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for coming. my name is Mark Philp. I'm a tutor in politics, uh, mainly in political theory and the history of political thought at Oriel College. Uh, and we have uh, here today two of my colleagues, uh, Adam Swift, who's at Baylor College, and Simon Caney, who's at Magdalen. We were going to have a uh, Minister for Higher Education. Uh, and I want to assure you that I have as much control over his non-appearance as I have over the intermittent showers. Uh, they seem to come more regularly than he manages to. Um, the, uh, the purpose of this session is to uh, talk about some of the issues relating to intergenerational justice. It's an issue that the three of us have been talking about for some time, uh, and it's an issue that David Willits does address in his book, The Pinch, uh, although we have views on that. Uh, to exchange with um, so, uh, did, uh... a bit disappointed about that we nonetheless thought it was silly to cancel the session because we do have some things that we'd quite like to get across to you uh, that we think are important uh, so those who definitely have a better offer at the moment uh, do feel free to leave if you don't uh, I would like to spend the next 45 minutes the three of us will spend the next 45 or so minutes talking about the issues of intergenerational justice and then we'll open it to the floor uh, and encourage you to sort of uh, ask questions uh, and express views um, and maybe afterwards we'll burn an effigy of the minister <laughs> uh, so the topic is intergenerational justice, and it's a topic, as I said, that we've been talking about for some time, um, and that we wanted to kind of share with you, and the aim of this session, in my view, is to try and air some of the dimensions of the topic. It's huge. Uh, We won't be able to cover everything, and you'll want to ask us questions about stuff that we don't really know anything about. We're all political theorists, political philosophers, so we worry about things rather than having solutions. (laughs) Right, so we can we turn up the... Yeah, is that better? Yeah, so we have, uh, um, we have views about these things. We, there, are, there will be questions you'll want to ask that we won't be able to answer. So if we could just get that clear from the beginning. I hope there will be questions you'll want to ask that we might have something to say something about. Um, when we started talking about this issue, there, there was a small contemporary literature largely deriving from John Rawls's book, A Theory of Justice, but it was relatively narrowly conceived. Now, I'm predominantly a historian of the 18th century. Uh, I mean, I work on things like political corruption. Uh, and I started in the 18th century, but the modern world looks also interesting from that point of view as well. But I was struck that at the end of the 18th century... It's only at the end of the 18th century that people begin to raise the question about intergenerational justice and the responsibilities that one generation has to another. Um, It starts with Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Uh, It's pretty prominent in Burke's eulogy of generational transfer in his uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France, it's there very centrally in Tom Paine's second part of The Rights of Man and in his piece on agrarian justice. And at the same time that Paine is developing the idea, he's talking to Jefferson, and Jefferson's letters to Madison reveal that he's also thinking about questions of generational sovereignty, the obligations of one generation to another, and duties of generational transfer. You'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to bore you with any of that detail. Um, I only wish to raise the following question and to think about that. And that is, what needs to be in place for questions of intergenerational justice to be posed? So let me suggest four things. First of all, people can't see the world as wholly determined. Justice is something that's predicated of agents, not of automatons. People can act differently if they choose, and they have to be able to act differently their, if they choose, in order for the justice to be something that we can describe, we use to describe them. I mean, if we ascribe people's agencies to the gods, or to providence, or to other supra individual forces, uh, if they're future is literally in the lap of the gods, then it's not going to be a question of intergenerational justice. So for Aeschylus and Sophocles, uh, intergenerational justice is nothing more than a playing out of the tragic consequences of our predecessors' actions. Generation after generation inherits the consequences of their paternal and maternal behavior. So Agamemnon sacrifices Iphigenia, she's avenged by Clytemnestra, uh, he's avenged by Orestes and so on and on and on. But there's no sense of justice between generations, it's just a kind of determined process. So they cannot be, um, they, things can't be wholly determined. The second consideration is that they, you can't be hugely optimistic or hugely pessimistic. If everything is going to get infinitely better... There's no reason to worry about, for the existing generation to be concerned about what they hand on. And if everything is going to get immediately and dramatically worse, there's a very similar problem. This seems to me a time-sensitive version of Hume's view that you get justice in circumstances of limited scarcity and there's no place for it either in conditions of abundance or in conditions of absolute scarcity. If you think about that within one generation, you can imagine that in sort of a war-torn zone where you're literally struggling for, kind of, uh, for life, issues of justice are not going to be central. You survive. That's all you can do. If you're in a kind of utopia where everything is free, you don't have to worry about justice either. Uh, it's in the conditions of moderate scarcity that you do. And all the intergenerational. One way of thinking about intergenerational justice is it takes that Humean view and extends it over time. Uh, So, insofar as you think there's sort of uh, absolute scarcity in the future, it won't make any difference to you. I mean, you won't have a conception of justice. If you think there's absolute abundance, then you won't have a conception of justice. Now, those two factors suggest why the idea flourishes in the late Enlightenment and why it doesn't get much followed up in the 19th century, because that century embraced a good deal of determinism with respect to social change and a good deal of optimism about future progress. There are also another couple of factors that you need to add into the equation. We need to see the question of intergenerational justice not just as a question of individual morality, but as a question of social norms and rules, there's a, limit how, uh, there's a limit as to how far any individual can be just on their own, both because justice refers to sets of relationships and responsibilities that involve people doing their share in something like a cooperative scheme, and because we no longer have a platonic view of justice as simply a well-ordered soul. Insofar as we recognize it as a virtue, we do so as one that relates to a larger sphere that encompasses than that is encompassed by individual action. But that also, of course, means that justice is a matter of politics, in that the agreed set of rules and principles must in some cases be enforced upon those who resist them, and that, no, that then raises questions about feasibility. How can we get enough people to accept, to make enforcement of a certain, uh, to, to accept uh, principles that then Make enforcement of a certain set of rules feasible. And that suggests that there's a close link between political feasibility and our conception of individual and collective agency. Finally, there's a question of legitimate partiality. We think some forms of partiality are okay and acceptable. It's all right to invite my friends and my family to my party, even if it means missing you lot out. In other cases, we think exercises of partiality are not acceptable, hence conflict of interest legislation, hence rules about uh, just judges not being able to judge in their own case, and so on. Now, justice issues are ones that attempt to frame legitimate partiality, that is attempt to frame what it's legitimate for, legitimate for, uh, legitimate for us to do uh, and to be partial about, but try to frame that within impartial rules. Um, but they have to take into account that people can, what people can accept as constraints on partiality and what we can expect in terms of people adopting a more impartial perspective. When we see a child drowning... We don't, I hope, ask, well, is it one of mine? Uh, and we, we hope, I hope we don't remain unmoved if it doesn't turn out to be one of yours. Yet, as Peter Singer's recently made very apparent, we do think that spending a couple of pounds on a drink is okay, even if I could use it to buy a vaccine or some resource that would save somebody else's life somewhere on the planet. We can't say we don't know this Whereas in the last century, we might have been able to say we didn't know that. But most of us either don't have a clear sense of what it is that we do owe to others and what we're right to claim for ourselves. And if we are clear, it's often because we're unreflective. So we might then use these conditions to explain why we now have an upsurge of interest in questions of intergenerational justice and what its correct scope is. First of all, we don't think our future is open. Uh, or we sorry, we do think our future is open, or at least some aspects of our future is open. In some respects, we think we have the capacity, politically, at a global level, to make a difference to the quality of people's lives over the long term and into the future. That is, we believe, rightly, that we can prevent substantial and significant harm to future generations by changing what we do now. Secondly, we no longer believe, globally or even nationally, that the next generation, or those subsequent, will automatically be better off than us, on a whole range of issues and measures, climate, resources, environment, welfare, security, health, poverty, and so on. Nor do we believe that there's nothing we can do about that condition. Indeed, we both feel that we have agency with respect to some aspects of the future and some responsibility towards them, that the quality of their lives depends in part on the choices that we make about the quality of our lives, and that some choices we make Are irresponsibly harmful to them. Thirdly, we do think this is about justice. It's political. We have the power to impose costs or create or protect goods. Moreover, while some individual actions will matter, for the most part we need coordination and rules and agreements to bring about goods or to protect people from certain harms. Fourthly, we are in classic partiality-impartiality territory. We have needs and concerns, some for ourselves, some for our particular descendants, but we also have to recognize that others to whom we are unrelated have legitimate needs and concerns and that our actions will directly and indirectly affect their security, their longevity, their quality of their lives, their capacity to secure well-being and so on. And we need to know what the legitimate trade-offs are between our sense of what we owe to ourselves and what we owe to others. And finally, there is a question about how we get from here to there. Because of partiality, because of people's limited rationality, because of coordination problems, because of a whole range of political problems, we face a traditional justice problem, traditional that is at least since Plato, that we have a sense of what the ideal is, without it being clear how we get to there from here. Some might take that to mean that, in fact, we don't have the agency. And that seems to me a classically tragic picture, that things could be other, it's in our power, but we can't, in fact, live up to the standards that we ourselves believe are normative for us. But that understates the extent to which political action can really make things different. Changing people's incentives, shaping their behaviour, making certain individually unachievable options collectively possible. That's not to say it's easy, but it must also be clear that a great deal depends on politics and on the ability of those in politics to provide leadership and to persuade us to share and to acknowledge as just and feasible a vision that links us to the future. And it may be for us, collectively, to try and persuade them, if they'll turn up, that we think it's important enough. In this, as in some other areas, there is a real sense that it's our generation that must make progress. Because it's increasingly apparent that things will get harder, and that the costs borne by others for the decisions we take now will ratchet up. That's why it would have been good to have David Willett's here. In his book, The Pinch, he makes a strong case for the baby boomer generation having responsibilities towards the next generation because they had it so good. And the subsequent generation clearly won't. It would have been nice to have had a clearer sense of how that ties in with massive increases in the cost of education to the new generation. And the book also thinks that the way to appeal to people is through those to whom they're connected. That is, to people, it's on the, he appeals to the partiality that they feel towards their family and the idea of their families, uh, subsequent families. And one thing that we ought to discuss is how far that dependence on partiality and motivation is compatible with the more impartial demands of justice. So, I hope to frame the topic to some extent. I'll now hand over to the real experts. Uh, first to Simon uh, to talk about, um, I not remember what you are. <laughs> Better to talk thank you very much it's going to be hard to follow
1: that um Mark mentioned that I'm based at Magdalen and uh, that's salient for the way I'll begin and the way that I'll end so uh, Joseph Addison a fellow of Magdalen from 1698 to 1711 famously wrote we're always doing something for posterity um but I would fain see posterity do something for us. So this raises the important question, what do we owe to these future people? People we won't meet, many of them, some of them who will live uh, decades, centuries, even millennia after we live. And how can we make sense of the idea that we have obligations of justice to them? Now what I'm going to talk about is... uh, That there are already two ways of thinking about this, at least. It's not exclusive, and I'm going to focus on the second way. So, uh, I think it's helpful to say that there are some issues to do with our obligations to future generations, where what we're talking about is overlapping generations. So, we have three generations, just simplistically young, middle, and old. Um, And there are, and actually, David Willits talks about this in his interesting book, um, The Pinch. There are ideas of reciprocity. So let me just flesh this out by talking about four policy areas. Um, uh, Education is a clear one. You might think well, people who are uh, in the middle should um, pay for education because they were paid for by people who are in the, the third tier. So they should pay for it for generation one. And that's an idea of reciprocity, where you owe something to others because you have received that. And often we have um, ideas of direct reciprocity. So if someone does something good for me, I should do it back to them. And if you think of these three generations, it's very easy to make sense of healthcare provision like this. So uh, people in the middle should pay for the health care for those in in. Uh, the older generation because they received some benefit from them in the past. Housing, pensions, education, health care, they all kind of fit this model. And in all cases, there's some strain going on at the moment. Um, so housing, the average uh, age of a first-time buyer is now 37 years old, where I can't remember what it was when I first bought one, but it was a lot younger. So if you do political philosophy uh, as we do, you see it everywhere. You you see justice everywhere. And I see it even in, you know, entrance to housing. You see it in in jobs and pensions. So one uh, clear question is, do people have a right to a job when they enter the workplace at, uh, say, the age of 21 or so? Uh, Do older people uh, have a a duty of intergenerational justice to give up their job uh, so that someone else could have it? So academics are quite keen, or many of them anyway, for working on and on and on. Um, But maybe uh, some of us, I hope, in a few uh, decades' time, have a a duty of justice to move over. This isn't my area of expertise, these overlapping generations ones. I'm introducing it just to say, well, there are questions of intergenerational justice which fit that mould. But there are also ones that there are no overlapping generations. And ideas of reciprocity begin to break down. And for that purpose I want to talk a little bit about global climate change, because that's mainly what I work on in this context. And so as I'm sure you're all familiar, if, if you look at the reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they tell us that sea levels uh, are going to rise by up to six metres in the sorry sixty centimetres in the next hundred years. They say they bracket out um, the collapse of ice shield sheets, and if you added that in, um, they would go up by a further 12 metres, which is a considerable change. Um, the temperatures are projected to increase by between 1 and 6 degrees over the next 100 years. But some of the time frame shouldn't really be thought of in hundreds of years. So uh, if you look at... Um, what climate scientists say about greenhouse gases, uh, the longevity of CO2 can be for thousands of years, even uh, hundreds of thousands of years. So if you burn one tonne of coal, I, I don't know if this is very well known or not, but if you burn one tonne of coal, then 25% of the CO2 emitted will still be around in a 1,000 years, and 10% will still be around in 100,000 years. So the idea, if someone scratches my back, I'll scratch theirs, may work in the overlapping generations case. Um, you know, I can pay money that goes into a fund that pays someone else's health care because I benefited as a child. But it's very hard to think of what you owe to someone in 100,000 years in terms of reciprocity. I, I don't think there's a whole lot that they can do for me. Um, and, uh, but there is something that I can do for them. So the other striking feature of the, um, the climate change case is that we're also governed a bit from the past. So the actions of people born in um, the 17th, 18th century, especially the 19th century, are having huge impacts now. There's very little I can do to harm them. We can uh, maybe ruin their reputations or something, but that really is a small fry for... Uh, The harm that it turns out they're doing to us. So then the question we face here is, well, how do we even think about this? Do we have obligations to people in a thousand years' time? Um, And if so, what kind? I think the way I want to proceed is just to say, here's how I think about it, and then here are problems. Um, So I think it's very useful to think of a intergenerational conversation you might have with someone in 100,000 years time or a thousand years time and to look at it from their point of view and our point of view and to see other principles that we could agree on that they would say you've left us a decent enough world and that we could look at and say yeah that's not unreasonably demanding so I, I'm taking this idea from John Rawls who Mark mentioned but applying it in a way that he doesn't himself apply it And that that models an idea of impartiality. And if um, we can't look at someone in 100,000 years' time in the eye and say, uh, we think this is fair, don't you? Then I think that's a sign that we're doing something wrong. What would it mean, though, if we did this? So one one possibility is you think, well, everyone just has some fundamental human rights. Now, if there are these sea level rises and temperature increases... um, that will jeopardize at least three rights. One is the right to life, because people will die because of storms and tornadoes, uh, massive flooding. One is the right to food. Um, not that I provide them with food, just that I don't destroy all their crops. Um, but if their temperatures are increasing by six degrees, we're going to be destroying people's uh, access to food. And a third one is the right to health, um, And again, it's not necessarily that we have a duty to provide good health, but uh, I think we have a duty not to destroy the conditions of good health. But again, with high uh, rises in sea level and high increases in temperature, there there are going to be people dying. In fact, there are people dying already of heat stress um, and freak weather events. So I hope, and you can tell us later, that these are really minimal, undemanding things. You shouldn't, in one version, do any harm. You shouldn't um, do things which lead to people's death, uh, destroy their agriculture, and ruin their health. And Um,
0: it was uh, built because Archbishop Gilbert Sheldon...
1: Cool. You know I said we should have this conversation with the future. (laughs) I didn't know they were listening. So... Okay, so... um, (laughs) Oh. I was going to mention the possibility of time travel, but I didn't really um, entertain that But Okay, let's go on. So I, I don't know if this resonates with people or not, but, uh, and I think it's actually ultra-minimal. It's not that demanding to act in ways that um, don't kill people. But let me put some figures on this. So uh, Sir Nicholas Stern, in the 2007 Stern Review... Said that the cost of stabilising greenhouse gas emissions at uh, a safe level, which is of course scientifically um, up for discussion, but he said that would cost 1% of global GDP per annum. Um, others think it should be, you know, it is going to be higher. It would be more like 2%, 3%, 4%. But um, to some extent, there's guesswork going on there. But that seems a reasonable price, at least to me. So I think I could imagine that intergenerational conversation. Uh, saying, um, if we didn't do that, they would say, but it was only 3 or 4% or 2% of global GDP. You really don't think our lives are worth it. And now I just want to give three kind of challenges people give and um, then a general reflection at the end. So one challenge people give, and actually David Willits gives it in the pinch, but it's not unique to him, is to say, that's unrealistic, Uh, people relate to each other uh, in personal terms, they apply partiality, and you can see that reflected in overseas donations, that people don't um, treat foreigners the same as they treat their own fellow nationals. So there's a very simple response to that, which is, well, um, people also don't write thank you letters on time, but that really doesn't mean anything about what they ought to do, Um, as I know. Uh, But Just going a little bit further, I mean, I'd be interested what people's reaction are to this question. Suppose you could fire a rocket and it would kill 100 people in 40 years' time, or 100 people in 60 years' time. On the view that um, David Willits and many, many others hold, they'd have to say uh, it's worse to kill the people who are closer in time. And I find that mystifying because there's the same number of dead people, it's the same kind of action... And how could someone's place in time make them more important? But this is what economists call um, positive pure time discounting. That is, you accord more significance to things the closer they are to you. Um, So my first response is, well, just because people do, that doesn't mean anything about what they ought to do. But secondly, I just don't think if you framed it as clearly as I hope I've done, that they would say, yes, actually it's okay to uh, kill people if they're further off in the future it might be different for for example for welfare provision for education there we might think actually yeah there are duties of partiality I should give to the old age pensioner because their generation made sacrifices for me so that's why I mean that the two models should be distinguished and maybe kept apart but anyway someone might say second thing well they're going to be a lot wealthier Um, I, I don't know why they're so optimistic that they are going to be wealthier. But um, one economic response to the argument is, they could look after themselves, they're going to be very wealthy. But I don't think that actually takes the economics or the science seriously. Um, So Dave Frame and Mars Allen, both climate physicists here, uh, in a very useful survey said there are six kind of positive feedback mechanisms by which um, if we don't stop... Uh, climate change, there's a process that takes place which makes it even more severe. So the permafrost melts, which releases more methane, and methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. Or um, the sea gets warmer and that releases um, methane. Or the Amazon rainforest uh, gets destroyed, and that has a huge amount of carbon locked up in the trees there. So that makes it worse. So we shouldn't act now because they will be wealthy and they can cope with it, uh, runs against that point. But there's also the stern review point, which is it costs 1% of global GDP to do it now and up to 5 to 20% to do it later. So one interesting possibility is maybe we could act now and pass on the bill to those future people. Um, Another thought people have here is, well, uh, maybe we should just spend the money on technology and invest in it, and uh, rather than ruin our economy now, we should invest and and let greenhouse gases go up. But again, that's slightly uh, reckless, because we have to assume then that the benefits from the investment exceed the cost uh, of not doing anything. So it looks then, if those three challenges don't work, that we have these very um, binding commitments. To do no harm, that means we would have to reduce greenhouse gases so that future people, including people in 3,000 years' time, can enjoy their rights. Just to bring out what that means, I mentioned Mars Allen and A-frame. They say that humanity can emit 250,000 um, million uh, uh, tons of, of carbon. We've had a trillion. We've emitted. Um, sorry. Let me start again. If we want to avoid dangerous climate change and have a 50 50% chance, then we can emit a trillion tonnes of carbon from 1750 to 2500. But we were all, we've already used half. So if we want to gamble a 50 50 ch- chance of dangerous climate change, then we've got another half trillion. But if we want to give them slightly better odds and give them a, a 75% chance of avoiding dangerous climate change, we should only emit another 250,000 million. And that means, you know, we have to do a lot of reducing emissions. So let me move to the end by saying two things that might follow from this. Um, This has been quite abstract, so someone might think, well, what does this mean? Well, it seems the drivers of these emissions are three things. People, um, fewer people would mean fewer emissions. Uh, Consumption and the use of energy. So we either have to have fewer people or we have to reduce consumption, or we have to reduce the use of energy. And this illustrates the point about intergenerational justice being everywhere, because someone might think we should have nuclear, but nuclear waste lasts for 100,000 years in some cases. So um, I'm not going to prescribe any one of those, and maybe we have to do all three of of those, but the practical implications of what I've said are that we either have to um, reduce the number of people, or reduce our consumption um, and or these are not mutually exclusive use uh, solar energy or wind energy or tidal energy or geothermal energy um, because otherwise we're gambling with people's rights now let me um, close by turning on my kindle and going to another Magdalen alumni alumnus By the way, Joseph Addison really couldn't complain because he had a walk named after him and uh, he's lived on in history. So in his collection of short stories, Pulse, Julian Barnes imagines four people at a dinner party and they're pondering whether governments will act soon enough to prevent climate change. And one of them says, well, people's going to recognize it's in their own self-interest. And someone points out the long nature of it. And he says, well, they recognize the interest of subsequent generations. And one of the companions quips, "Uh, subsequent generations don't vote for today's politicians. And I think that is not just true, but it's very important, because our current political system, and in all democratic systems, is inherently myopic, you know. Uh, this is not a condemnation of politicians. It's very sensible for them to focus on the near term to get elected. Um, they are not going to get votes from people in a 1,000 years' time or 100,000 years' time. So then this poses a very practical question. Um, do we just hope that they will look forward or do we redesign institutions in uh, such a way that they make us look more to the future? And were the minister to have been here, I would ask, well, what what kind of reforms could the current, or indeed any government, implement? And some governments, for example, have a commission for future generations, and their job is to scrutinise legislation, and any parliamentary representative has to stand up and explain why their policies have effects on future generations. And uh, I would have been interested to know what he thought about that, but uh, perhaps more saliently what you think about it as well. Thank you very much.
2: Um, so I'm Adam Swift, not Adam Smith, who you heard talk about. I did learn after his finals from one of my recent students that he'd applied to Balliol because he heard that Adam Smith was a tutor at Balliol. Uh, it is true that Adam Smith was at Balliol, but about 250 years ago. So that's my students' you. Okay, so I'm going to talk about something a little bit different, but I hope connected to um, what... Simon was talking about, there's an issue about whether we're right to think of people in the future as mattering less, or perhaps as mattering less to us than people now, Uh, and it's clear, as he said, that we do think that way, everything we do is evidence that we think that way, but there's an issue about whether we're right to think that way, but similarly there's an issue about whether we're right to think that how much people matter, or perhaps how much they matter to us, depends on our relationship to them. And again, we definitely do think that way. So we care far more about the well-being of members of our family than we do about our fellow citizens generally. And we seem to care much more about the well-being of our fellow citizens generally than we do about human beings worldwide, globally. So we can think there are kind of two dimensions of distance. There's the distance that we have, temporal distance or generational distance, people get further away in time. Uh, away from her at any Usually given time. Usually
0: there is a university function going on, those gates are closed. Can, any, can like anybody do
2: something that, about that? Is there I'm anybody that. here who can make it happen that that does not happen? <laughs> that would be helpful. So, and so there's temporal distance or generational distance on the one hand, and there's this kind of relationship distance on the other hand. What kind of relationship we have with people seems like it makes a difference. All right. well, here. And in both of them, as people get further away, they seem to matter less. And, of course, these dimensions can come apart. So one could care about the future generations of one's own society, but not particularly about the future generations of humanity as such. And everything that's in David Willits' book, For What It's Worth, is about that problem. He's a national politician, and he's interested in the issue of intergenerational justice, you know, let's say, within the UK. Uh, you know, is it fair now that baby boomers aren't paying what they should be paying to look after the current future generations as they are emerging here now? He's not interested in the global question at all. And um, you know, so philosophically speaking, that looks like a, a, you know, a, a serious limitation on the analysis. In Simon's terms, it would be. Okay, so I'm going to talk at the other end of the spectrum from Simon. Simon was talking about... He was talking in the temporal dimension and he was talking about the very long term or trying to get us to think about the very long term. Uh, I'm going to talk about families. I'm going to talk about parents and children. And One of the things that David Willett says in his book, and he's absolutely right about this, is that we're much better parents than we are citizens. And Part of the problem is that we're better parents than we are citizens. And I'm going to suggest that we're too good as parents and the fact that we're too good as parents means that we're not good enough as citizens so we exceed in the, the terms that mark puts it we go beyond the bounds of legitimate partiality in this specific respect that we do too much for our children and this is a problem why is it a problem because it comes at a cost to our fellow citizens why does it come at a cost to our fellow citizens because the more that relatively advantaged parents do for their children the more they're able to transmit advantage intergenerationally within their families, the more, the harder it is for those with relatively disadvantaged parents to climb the social ladder. So there's a pretty straightforward trade-off between parental partiality on the one hand, the partiality that we naturally show towards our children on the one hand, and equality of opportunity or social mobility. So again, there's a lot of talk You can't avoid it in contemporary politics, people talking about the importance for more social mobility. But one of the main reasons why we don't have uh, as much social mobility as we might is because we allow parents to do things for their children that make it less likely that there's going to be social mobility. I'm not saying that's wrong. There's going to be a trade-off in certain places. And what I'm going to try and do is give you a theory for how to think about that trade-off. That's that's what I'm going to do in the ten minutes I've got left. So I guess I do think we haven't got the balance right between our loving concern for the well-being of our own children and this more impartial concern that all the children in our society should enjoy something approaching equality of opportunity. That's the kind of general idea. There's an interesting story about Tony Blair. I always think this is a really good example of, of one of the things I'm talking about. In Robin Cook's diaries... Um, there's a story about Tony Blair so asked by a journalist why he didn't send his son to an ordinary state school I don't know if you remember but Tony Blair sent his sons to the London Oratory which was a lot in London but involved travelling really quite a long way from Islington um, and so on when, so asked why he just didn't send his son to the local school he said well look at Harold Wilson's children and the journalist said but, but, but Harold Wilson's children one of them became a headmaster and the other is a professor of mathematics at the Open University and Blair replied, Well, I certainly hope my children can do better than that. <laughs> right? Now, you know, this is in Robin Cook's diaries, who knows if it's true? But the idea that people feel it's okay for them to care so much about the future well being of their children that it's not even enough for them to have this, I mean, the professor of mathematics read maths at Balliol, so you know he did fine. So the idea that kind of this was not good enough seems to be kind of bizarre um, and kind of symptomatic of this general excessive uh, concern that w- this idea that it's okay for us to uh, do more than I think is okay to ensure our children's futures. Okay, so here's my little theory about how to think about this. So I've been working on a theory of family values that's supposed to give us a way of thinking about what it is that parents should and shouldn't be allowed to do for their children. So the idea is to start by asking some really fundamental questions such as, why should children be raised in families at all? Why not raise children in state-run quasi-orphanages? Those presumably would be much better in terms of equality of opportunity or social mobility. Now, don't worry... I do realize that raising children in state-run quasi-orphanages is the kind of thing that only crackpot philosophers think about. But why do we think about them? Well, in thinking about why it would be really bad for children to be raised that way, we can see what it is that families are really for, why it's valuable. Why the institution of how it's not just a natural institution, it is a natural institution, but it's not just a natural institution, it's an institution that we value for certain reasons. And the idea is to kind of have a kind of thought experiment to see what's valuable about it. And my claim is that by thinking about what's valuable about families, we can derive a theory about what parents should and shouldn't be allowed to do for their children. That's what I'm going to try and do now, five minutes left. So the way to think about this is to talk about, in my language, familial relationship goods. By allowing families to exist and not raising children in these state-run quasi-orphanages, we allow human beings to realize certain crucial goods in their lives, goods that derive from familial relationships. That's the kind of category. So there's this category, familial relationship goods. These are goods that couldn't be realized in other ways. Now, I I am trying to write a whole book explaining what these goods are, but in a sentence, the basic idea is that children have developmental and non-developmental needs that can only be met by a certain kind of attachment with adults and that kind of attachment could only be provided in something like the family but also adults have a very very strong interest in being parents so if you were told sorry i know you've just produced this child but it's going to be taken off to the state run quasi orphanage you'd say well hang on a minute i want to parent this child um, and you'd have all kinds of reasons you could give for why it was important to you to be able to do that. So it's not just in children's interest families, they're in adults' interest too. Okay, so that's the summary of why families are valuable. So the aim of my theory is to leave enough room for parents to enjoy the goods that the family distinctively makes possible, goods that depend for their existence on parents treating their children differently from other people's children. Whilst on the other hand, mitigating the extent to which the family undermines equality of opportunity. Right? The idea is to keep what's valuable about families, but um, isolate things that are valuable about families and get rid of the stuff that is not essential to these relationship goods. So, given inequalities of resources, as I've said, between parents of different children, then parental acts to further their children's interests are going to create injustice. So let's think of some some mechanisms by which, in the world as it is, relatively advantaged parents tend to produce relatively advantaged children, which is inimical to social mobility and equality of opportunity. So they give them things. They they gift them money and they bequeath them things. They pay for private schools or private tuition. They give them access to social networks. Uh, Children grow up knowing their parents' friends Parents have different kinds of friends across the social spectrum, and obviously this is a kind of mechanism that tends to favour some children over others. They transmit values to their children, and they form their ambitions in certain kinds of ways. I'm sure Tony Blair, that would be a good example of that. He would have formed his son's ambitions partly through the kind of ambitions he had for his son. Uh, There are different styles of parenting. There's a wonderful book called Unequal Childhoods, which is a kind of study of different parenting styles and, and the, 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 it's in America but the author kind of identifies on the one hand a, a parenting style called concerted cultivation right, where the child is seen as a kind of project in the parent's life and there's a concerted project to cultivate that child and on the other hand many many families especially low income families go in for what she calls a natural growth model you don't, you don't cultivate the child you just let them be and see what happens obviously these kinds of differences are going to play out in terms of The kinds of children these are going to become and the kind of advantages they're going to have in their lives. So I want to say that doing things like reading your children bedtime stories or taking them to cricket matches, which is very important in my own parent-child relationships, is permissible because it's the kind of interaction that is required for the family to realize these goods in people's lives. But, I say, sending your child to an expensive private school or bequeathing them your property is not the kind of interaction with your child that is essential to realizing the kinds of goods that only families can realize. That is the basic theory, right? And so. We can talk about it at great length, but the idea is that it gives you a kind of cutting, it gives you a way of cutting up things that parents do into those that are really important to family life and the goods it realises, and those that we want to do for our children, but it wouldn't disrupt family life properly, understood, if we weren't allowed to do it. Now, notice all the evidence suggests that reading bedtime stories is much more valuable for children than sending them to private schools. The difference between children who do and don't get bedtime stories is much bigger than the difference between children who get to go to private schools and those who don't. Okay? So I'm not trying to find a theory that reduces um, the impact of family life. I'm just genuinely trying to find the things that really matter to family life and see what we might get rid of if we wanted to whilst respecting the family. Can I have a bit of water, Mark? I'm just going a bit dry. But notice also, nearly finished, that all the evidence is It's the way that things like bedtime stories interact with the social environment that create the inequalities of opportunity between people, So we could imagine a society, again, I'm doing philosophy, so I'm allowed to just imagine alternative forms of society. Imagine a society where we allow parents to read bedtime stories to their children, but we have a reward structure that doesn't so closely reflect whether or not you happen to have had bedtime stories when you were a child. For example, if you got the same income, whatever job you happen to do, right? there's all kinds of reasons not to do that. But imagine a society where you just got the same income, whatever job you did. Then whether or not you'd had bedtime stories and therefore had kind of uh, developed all the faculties that we know that getting bedtime stories develops wouldn't make so much difference to your prospects in life, right? So, it's important to see that it's, it's, it's the interaction between these familial relationships and the way we construct reward structures in the society that generates the inequalities of opportunity that I've been talking about. So, as philosophers, as I say, we can kind of try and keep these things separate and see where the problems lie. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. In my view, there are, there are strong reasons for protecting the intimate activities through which... Uh, In the world we currently inhabit, parents tend to transmit their advantage to their children. Many of the most important mechanisms by which parents transmit advantage to their children are indeed uh, mechanisms like bedtime stories and taking your child on holiday with you and talking to them and chatting over meals. And these are the things that actually are important for how well children do in life. So we have to protect those. But I say there's another category of stuff which is not so central yet we, no- we nonetheless allow people to do it, such as sending them to private schools or bequeathing them one's property. So that's the summary of my little theory about family values. Um, and as I said, it's, it's, kind of a, it's at the other extreme from what Simon says because it's not about long-term intertemporal. It is intertemporal because it's about justice between our generation and the next generation, but it's really about partiality within particular forms of relationship. Okay, thank you. Thank you.